to the book of Acts chapter 3. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at the story as we've just been continuing. What we typically do is we take just books of the Bible and we are uh, in the book of Acts. We just read verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we let God speak to us. Uh, Today is kind of a really unique portion of in the book of Acts. It's really a story. It's a really long story. It's kind of broken up into several large chunks. And what I want to do is I want to just take a look at um, the first part of the story. Um, the, The story is really long. Um, but we're going to look at the first 10 verses of it. And the way it breaks down is you have the first 10 verses kind of describing the action of what happens. We'll look at that in a moment. And then Peter, um, one of the spokesmen or early church leaders, then addresses the audience that are raising questions as to kind of what happened. And then Peter does what we would call like a sermon or a monologue where he begins to answer the question as to what in the world has happened here. So we'll kind of briefly look at some elements of that, but we won't look at the major uh, unpacking of what Peter has to say. We'll mainly just look at, like I said, look at the story. We'll make some observations. The unique thing about stories is stories are not necessarily intended for us to dissect every single word and phrase and concept, but it's more so to allow us to enter into it, to kind of ask the bigger questions, like what's going on? Why is this happening? So the idea would be to kind of, uh, not get lost looking at the trees, but to try to observe the forest. Look at the bigger picture of what's happening here, what Luke, the author of this book, is trying to convey and communicate to us regarding this story. So with that, I want to begin by reading. We'll pick it up at uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 47. The reason why we'll do that is because uh, 47 kind of has this little passage where it says, uh, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And so what Luke's going to do in the, in throughout the book of Acts, he's going to like make little statements, and then he'll tell a story to unpack how that statement is coming to pass. So in this context, it's um, this church was growing, and they were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people. So this concept of having favor with all the people is going to be expounded into and through the, remain, the remainder of the story. So does that make sense? So again, um, originally when this would have been written, there was no chapter break. So if you would have been reading this in the first century, you wouldn't have stopped at chapter two and been like, okay, well, let's take a couple days off from reading the Bible and let's read next time we get together, chapter three. Um, And by the time you sit down a couple days later to read chapter three, you've already forgotten what you're in chapter two. So again, Luke finishes this train of thought by basically saying there's favor being poured out upon all the people. Now, um, real fast before I jump in this kind of background, all the people that Luke is talking about is really, if you think of it this way, there's at least three categories of people. One, you have the Roman officials. These would be the guards, the guardians of the temple in the region of Judea. Then you have the religious leaders. This would have been the scribes and the Pharisees and Sanhedrin. This would have been the religious leaders of the group of people there. And then you would have had the broader general population. So the, all the people that he's referring to here is no doubt not the Romans and definitely not the religious leader, but is no doubt a reference to the general population. And the reason why we know that is because the major antagonists in the story are not going to be the people, general people. It's going to be the religious leaders, and in some cases, the Roman leaders, but more so the religious leaders. So the general population of the people are watching this movement unfold called Christianity. It wouldn't be called Christianity until later, but as this movement begins to unfold and unpack, people are being blown away by it. They're being swept up in it. They're being moved by it. They're asking questions. What in the world's happening? This is absolutely compelling and beautiful, and how can we be a part, and what's happening, and why is this taking place? We want in, 
And that's where the story continues to take us. So, hopefully that all makes sense. Why don't we all stand as we read God's word? It allows us to just transition our hearts to think about what God has to say to us. And then I'll read, I'll pray, we'll jump in. Acts 3, verse 1 says this. Now Peter, John and Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. More than that moment, it was the ninth hour, or in other words, three in the afternoon. And a lame man uh, who was born or from birth was being carried, whom they would lay daily at this gate of the temple that was called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of all those who were entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms from them. Then Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Verse 9 says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So that phrase, filled with wonder and amazement, connects with the very last verse that we just read at the end of chapter 2 where great favor was being spread. This is, again, bringing this story into that. So this is God's word. Let me pray and let's ask God's favor upon us. God, right now, uh, we pray that our hearts, our minds would be expanded. God, I pray that our imaginations would be open to expect great things from you. You're a God that works miracles. That's what we first observation we make in this story. You do great things. And Jesus, even after you left this earth, through your people, you still did great things. And that's what captivates our attention. It's what compels us. It's what's beautiful about the story. So God, we pray that you would show us uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to expect you to do great things, what it means to see these miracles and how we should understand them rightly. So God, we pray for your help upon our hearts here this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, why don't you all grab a seat. So before we jump in, a couple things to think about. Let's take a look at a map. Maps are always great, and maps kind of give us a little bit of a way of thinking about what has just happened because this story is a historical story, meaning it actually happened at a time 2,000 years ago and at a place, the Temple Mount. Now, we're also told specific details as to where this took place. We're told that it was at this gate called Beautiful. And ironically, we're also told the time of day that it happened. We're told that it was at the third or the ninth hour of the day. Some of your translations might have just uh, interpreted it already and said at nine, or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But the reality is, is that this was a time where uh, the Jews, they would gather three times a day typically and, and worship and pray. And this would have been a prayer time just before what was typically called the evening sacrifice. So they would then offer a sacrifice shortly after this time of prayer. But now remember, uh, Peter and John in this early sect, if you would, of Christians, followers of Jesus, they didn't like break away and be like, we are now Christians, we are no longer Jews. They were still Jews. This is kind of the interesting twist of what's happening in the story. Because a lot of times we read this story as Gentiles that are very, very far removed from Judaism or all things Hebraic. But the reality is the early Christians... They were followers of Yeshua, 
And Yeshua revealed himself through his servant, Jesus, or what we know as his son. So they would have been still connected to the temple. There would become a time in the near future in the story where they would basically be kicked out of the temple. In other words, they would no longer be welcomed there because they would be viewed as this completely distinct sect of Judaism that really wasn't even Judaism. They would see them as basically heretics, and at some point they would be kicked out. But for now, the Jews, the first followers of Jesus, in this case Peter and John, they went up to this temple and they would begin to pray. Now, the gate beautiful that we're told in, here in the story has in some cases, within some context, become a source of uh, textual Criticism. In other words, there are some scholars that would say we can't believe the Bible because the gate beautiful did not exist. And so uh, there's an arrow on there, and behind the arrow, behind the word gate beautiful or beautiful gate, is the little parentheses with the question mark in the middle. Because, true, we do not know exactly where the gate beautiful was. Some have suggested that it was this gate or called another gate called the Nicanor Gate. Um, but we're not absolutely certain. And when some have actually suggested the reason why it might be called or referred to as the beautiful gate here is because it was actually covered in gold. So in other words, it was a beautiful gate, right? And uh, therefore, some have suggested or speculated that this guy, we don't really know him by name, but we do know that he's around 40 years old because later we're told that in the story, that he would have been brought to this beautiful gate and there he would then beg. Now, if you think about it this way, in that context, um, there is this, um, okay, take a look at the entire structure on there. This entire structure is called the Temple Mount. The outer area of this, you see the colonnades, that was actually called Solomon's uh, colonnade, or Solomon, Solomon's portico, uh, portico, Solomon's court. The idea is that this is where large gatherings of people would come. Because this was the third hour or the ninth hour of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon, um, there probably would have been hundreds, if not maybe thousands of people going up to the temple at this time to pray. Now, because this guy had been lame, born lame from his youth, or since he was born, so told he was 40 years old, this guy no doubt would have been brought out for a very long time. So let's just assume that around after the time that he was recognized as an adult, so between 14, 15, somewhere around there, um, let's just assume that he'd been being brought out there since he was an adult. So imagine uh, he would have been brought out there for the past 25, almost 30 years. So for three decades, this guy would be brought out to this gate beautiful whereby he would then, he was the guy on the side of the road with a little cardboard sign that says, I'll work for food, I'll work for money. He was the guy that oftentimes gets ignored. He was the guy that when you walk by with your little kids to go offer your nighttime prayers, uh, your kids would ask, Mom, what's wrong with him? Why are his legs so messed up? Why is, there, why is he there? Why is he asking for money? Mom and dad would then quietly be like, well, he's, 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 he's got problems, he's got issues. We don't really know his name, but here's a quarter. Why don't you go give it to him? The point of the matter is, this guy was, for the most part, a nobody. He was not somebody of great significance to the story or to the people of Israel. He was just a guy, an everyday, average, forgettable type of a human being. On top of that, we see he would have been in this uh, temple area. So the next slide, I'll show you a little... um, Artwork that was actually uh, done in 1665, somewhere around there, um, by this guy. The name of the artwork is called Peter and John Healing the Lame Man, of course. And so there's three things that we see about this guy, or four things, I should say. One is that he was a man that was broken. He was broken, meaning physically he was unable to function and act like a typical, normal, whole, healed human being. He couldn't walk. He couldn't function. He was totally dependent upon other people to get him to that location. In fact, we're actually told that within the story. 
Second thing, we're told that he was weak. So obviously, because of the nature of his situation, paralysis, cripple, uh, crippling within his leg, whatever the case was, we're told that he was weak. Um, and then thirdly, we're also told that he would have been excluded. Why don't you go back real quick to the other side of the picture of the topographical map. So if he was on the outside of that area, you see that other little inner court. It was called like the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women. So you go through that gate, and then you go into this other court. Um, that inner court was a court that was only allowed if you were Jewish. And not only that, if you were a Jewish that was made whole or physically okay. Uh, the book of Leviticus actually states that if you were born with any form of uh, crippling diseases or you were made crippled as a result of circumstances in your life, um, and again, honestly, I, I, I might even not be using PC terms right now, but simply sticking with what the Bible describes there. Um, so if I offend you, sorry about that. But the point of the matter is, is with this crippling disease, you would not be allowed to go into that particular region. So this guy would have been uh, excluded. Uh, so for his entire life, he would have watched people go in to worship Yahweh, but would have always felt as he w- if he was a dude in the margins. He would have always felt as if he was the guy that everybody else gets the promotion, gets the ability to go seek Jesus or go seek God, I should say, Yahweh, gets to go offer their sacrifices, gets to go be part of the actual life of the Jewish people. But he was the guy that was forgettable and forgotten. He was the guy that was always on the margins, excluded. Uh, Back to the other slide. And then finally, uh, we also see that he was a guy that was just full of despairing. Um, Imagine, put yourself in his situation. Um, 40 years old, four decades of life. Um, As long as you can remember, you would always think of friends around you that were able to do stuff that you could never do. You would grow up, mom saying you can't do that. I'm sorry you can't do that. You would always imagine or hope or wish or dream or daydream that somehow you can do what all your other friends could do. Um, While you're of age where all your friends are getting married, you're obviously not going to get married because what woman, back in that context, would want to marry a guy that can never procreate with? So you suffer a life feeling loveless, as if nobody really ever wanted you, no one ever really expected anything from you. You were just somebody that was very easily forgettable. That was this man. So imagine the despair that would have no doubt defined his life. But what we're told in this story is that this broken man was made whole. This weak man was made strong, according to verse 7. This excluded man was included. Because verse 8, we're told that immediately after he was made whole, we're told that he goes into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. So imagine this. Four decades of life sitting on the outside. For the first time of your life, you enter inside. You're included now. Imagine that. This is, this is this guy's story. We get to enter into this. We get to see his story up close and personal. And finally, we see that this despairing man was given more than he can ever imagine. This is, this is an amazing reality. Because this guy, you imagine, if in his day-to-day routine, his rhythm of life uh, would have consisted of waking up every day. Who knows what he did in the morning? But at some point, we would imagine it take a long time to get stuff figured out and ready to go. Someone completely dependent upon somebody else, would get him to this particular gate. Uh, Again, there he is, part of this whole situation. And all he really wants that day, no doubt, is just what he typically wants every other day, was just a handout. (laughs) You know, maybe a loaf of bread, maybe something to eat. uh, But that's, I mean, if you were to ask him, what's your hopes and anticipations, expectations of life? It's like, I don't know, a loaf of bread, a couple bucks, 
this day, he gets something far more than he can ever even imagine. Because this is who God is. God oftentimes gives us more than we can ever dream of or more than we can ever imagine. And we, as human beings, oftentimes settle for something less than what God ever really wants to give. Think about it this way. How many of us actually have big expectations for God to do something in our lives? Um, I'm not going to quote it, but you guys have seen it enough. And it's one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis where he describes how oftentimes we are like these little children living in the slums where we are more content with just simply making mud pies in the middle of the slum when God's actually offering us this vacation or holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And the point of the matter is that many of us as human beings, we are just simply settlers for less. We settle for the easy, the low-hanging fruit. We just simply take it. In reality, maybe God has something far more intended for our lives. So the question I would ask you is, like, think about this. Like, in your mind, every one of us, to some degree, we have something that we look at and if we were to ask like, to write it out, what would be that one thing? Like, if you got this, then you would be satisfied. Like, every one of us have some sort of word or phrase to fill into that blank. If I just had dot, 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 you know, open space. If I just had a wife or just had a, a husband. If you're married, if I just had a child, I'd be satisfied. Or if I just had a healthy child, I'd be satisfied. If I just had a job, I would be satisfied. If I just owned a house, I would be happy. If I just owned, you know, another car, I would be fine. If I just had the vocation of my dreams, if I was just able to get the vocation I went to school for, I'd be satisfied. If I just had health, then I'd be happy. If I was just able to get this old body to somehow fire rightly to where everything is functioning properly, then I would be satisfied. See, oftentimes, we, we fail to see that God oftentimes has things to give us that are far beyond what we can ever even imagine. We are far too easily pleased. And here's this guy, just, my hopes for the day are a couple coins and maybe a loaf of bread. God's like, I'm going to give you something that you could never even imagine. The days your life's going to change forever. And that's what happened with this guy. What are you expecting God to do right now? Honestly, think about this. It's kind of where it brings it home to the tangible, the reality of our lives. Like, what are we expecting God to do today? I mean, some of us, we, you know, we come to church, like, I'm expecting to maybe hear a sermon that I'm not really too excited about hearing, or I'm expecting to sing a couple of songs, or I'm expecting to meet a couple of people, or I'm expecting to run into someone I didn't really want to see, or I'm expecting to get a cup of coffee, or I'm expecting to have some food afterwards. What are we really expecting of God to do in now, in this place, in this scenario? How do we think about God? Do we think of God? Because a lot of times how we think about God is going to determine what we expect of this God. If we think of God, oftentimes the way I describe it as nothing more than being this cranky, grumpy, irritable uh, landlord that's constantly looking for new ways to uh, evict you because you're nothing more than a squatter on his property then you will always live in fear of this God and you will always walk on tiptoe around this God, never really certain as to what his true intentions are for you. But if you accept, by faith, accept what Jesus has to say about the God that created you, if you accept, if you dare, if I can even say that, if you dare to accept the fact that God is not just a 
in your perspective, whatever it is that you think he is, but he's actually Abba. He's a daddy. And what can you expect to receive from a daddy who loves you? Jesus actually tells us, he says, if God, if, if you being human, all right, you human beings know how to give good gifts to your kids, he does these comparisons every once in a while, how much more can God, who is a good God, give good gifts to his kids? That's the point. So this guy receives something that he can never even imagine. So I want to jump in because what happens, all this is sort of um, uh, the pivot point of this entire chapter, the entire story is, is, is a miracle. Everything hinges on this miracle. Um, in fact, this is actually the very first miracle in the story of Acts. It's the first one. It's not the only one. It's the first of many that are going to proceed or go forth. In fact, the book of Acts is written over a span of a couple decades. And so a lot of times we read the book of Acts and we're like, oh my gosh, there are so, so many miracles going on in the book of Acts. But the reality is, is I mean, it's written over decades. And there's a handful of, I mean, I, I, I haven't done the math recently, but I heard someone say one time, again, I probably have to verify this, but probably if you were to average out the amount of years that the book of Acts spans and the amount of uh, miracles that are actually in the book of Acts, this probably comes out to like one a year, all right? So again, were there more? Of course there are more, but the reality is um, what we see God doing is, is something that begins, originates right here. So Luke has in mind something that he's trying to convey and communicate about God working through these things called miracles. So first of all, I need to address something real fast because when we think about the subject of miracles, a lot of times we think about miracles through the lens of modern day intelligence or modern day cynicism slash skepticism. So we hear miracles and we're like, ah, I love Jesus, I'm into God, but the whole notion of miracles is absolutely frustrating, maybe even some like offensive. Because we're like, I can believe in God, I can believe in Jesus because it's a historical fact, but the concept of somehow Nature being like doing things that we would never expect, that's where I have a problem with the Bible. Look, the reality is, is that the Bible is a story of, of God doing things, exercising laws that we never even can, even can even imagine. God exercising. So if you think of it this way, um, what God does when he does a miracle is he does something, puts into motion something that we never even really thought of. So a healing is perhaps could be this instantaneous, miraculous healing that otherwise maybe would have taken a lifetime or God just exercised something in an instant that, um, that would perhaps maybe take doctors and maybe even in some cases doctors can't even do anything. God just exercises laws that we never even have the privy or the knowledge uh, to be aware of. And God just does it because God is God. So really the issue is not so much our, our miracles are assembling a block, for me, the real issue is God's a stumbling block for me. Because if we believe in God as a powerful God, then he can do whatever he wants. And this is a story of the God in the scripture. And this is the God that does something. So the question that I really want to try to understand and meditate and consider from the story are really what's the point or purpose of miracles? Let's take a look at four specific things. We'll go through them quickly. And then uh, what I want to do today is I really just want to end on taking a look at how do we apply this in a very practical, contemporary type of a way. In other words, um, does God still do miracles? Does God still work? Does God still bring healing? And the answer is, is yes, we, we believe that. God doesn't do everything we ask him. There's absolutely no doubt to that. But the reality is, is that there are times when God does things that when, in response to us asking him. So we will, on a very practical note, ask God to do for us 
what we need him to do, just like God brought healing in this guy's life. So that's why I want to end. So first of all, we'll take a look at four specific things in terms of what miracles point to. One, we see that miracles point to Jesus' power to save. Jesus' power to save. Again, we're not going to get into the rest of the monologue that uh, Peter does, but in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, when people ask Peter, because imagine, in your mind, back in first temple or the first century temple scenario where this guy who was once you know, on the side in front of the gate beautiful, he's now whole, he walks in. He's not just walking in. He's absolutely freaking out, leaping, jumping, praising God. So this is a big scene in church service, all right? This guy is absolutely doing cartwheels down the aisle because he was never able to walk. Now he is able to walk. And not only that, but apparently do cartwheels. So he goes into the Temple Mount, walking, leaping, and praising God. And so people immediately ask, what in the world happened? What took place? And Peter's first response is he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. In other words, it's not us. We didn't do this. He says, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. So Peter's first and foremost response to this miracle is that this is not us doing something. This is not by our piety or by our holiness or by our righteousness. In other words, you can't look at us and somehow be like, we had something to do with this. Really, at the end of the day, this is Yahweh glorifying, honoring, bringing great Honor to his servant, his son, Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus is the one who's done this. He's going to go on in the rest of the story, but basically, in fact, I, I didn't leave it. I, didn't, I, I cut it out of here, but you can continue to read. Peter actually says something really cutting right there. He says, like, by the way, God is glorifying Jesus, whom you actually killed, right? So you guys, you guys try to kill him? God raised him, and now this Jesus, whom you guys, uh, by the way, again, try to kill? It's through this Jesus that this man, whom you're all aware of, has been made whole. So first and foremost, we see that these miracles point to the healing power of Jesus. The second thing is that miracles also point to God's power to mobilize our efforts and gifts. This is kind of an interesting thing throughout the story. Um, I'll just read a quick little quote from John Stott, who out of his commentary called The Message of Acts, he's actually quoting someone else. He says this, he says, the power was God's, but the hand was Peter's. I love that. Because in reality, we know that it was just God doing stuff. This was God miraculously moving. But God was moving through the hands of Peter and John. And what I love about this is that this becomes clear in verse 6. It says, Peter then said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And they took him by the hand and raised him. So Peter, if you imagine in your mind, Peter reaches down and says, look, I don't have any money. You're asking me for money. I don't have any money. What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, he reaches out his hand and he helps him stand up. And immediately as he stands up, we're told that his ankles, his legs began to receive this healing. So Jesus does his healing through Peter using his hand. I love this because if you think about it this way, God uses what we have in a lot of ways, even what we don't have. God looks for agents. By the way, the church is God's agent. I've said this before, I, ask, I, I do a, a training for men. One of the questions I ask them, I, I, kind of a theological question, I'm like, do you believe that Jesus is God's agent to bring healing and blessing in this world? Duh, the answer to that is, of course, yes. 
Yes, if you said no, got to go back to Theology 101 to understand the fact of the matter. The whole point of God's aim and blessing is through Jesus. But Jesus is not here. Jesus is, is with God in heaven. And in Jesus' place, Jesus has empowered us. We call ourselves the church. Not just Calvary Slope, but all who call upon the name of Jesus. All that commune, all that gather around the name and the glory and the kingdom and the love and the power of God, the forgiveness of Jesus, this church is the agent of God. And this church is composed of people like you and I. See, here's what oftentimes happens. We are so overwhelmed by our own inadequacies. We're overwhelmed by our lack. We're overwhelmed by the fact of stuff we don't have or training we didn't get or the abilities that we don't uh, uh, possess or control. And we look at these things and we're like... I can't evangelize. I can't share the love of Jesus Christ. I can't help out somebody who's in need because I don't have what's needed. I'll call someone that does. But Peter and John, they recognized that in spite of the fact of what we don't have, we don't have money, so we really can't help you in a monetary level right now. Now, there are occasions, obviously, within the church context that we do want to give money to other people that are in need. So it's not just simply saying, I'm just going to help you so that your soul gets saved uh, and not really care about your uh, immediate physical needs, but... In this particular context, Peter and John just simply don't have any money. And they say, we don't have anything. What you really need, what you're really asking for, but what we do have, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. So the question I would ask you, what do you have? What has God given you? What type of sphere of influence has God given you? Who are the people that God's put in your life? Because every one of us, we have this sphere, this little uh, this stage for some of us. Your stage is bigger. It's really bigger. Let's say if you run a company or you own a company or you're in management, your stage is bigger. If you're a musician and you play music in front of people, your stage is really big or can be really, really big. If you're an artist, if you're somebody like that, that a lot of people look in, your stage is very large. If you're your mom, you're, your stage may be a little bit smaller with your kids and neighbor kids and other people that are in your life. But the fact of the matter is we all have a stage. We all have a sphere of influence. So first of all, understand what your sphere of influence is. Also, secondly, look at what you have. Do you allow what you don't have or what you do have to be hindrances to allowing, to being a a voice piece, an agent of God's blessing? This is what we see, that these miracles, they point to the fact that God just simply wants to take anything that we have or anything that we don't have. Um, I remember hearing years and years ago in someone's message or sermon or podcast or whatever it was, someone said something to the fact, it never left me because this is one of those like pithy statements. Someone probably maybe even put it on a, on, a, on a teacup or something like that. But God is not necessarily looking for our ability, but he's looking for our, you guys know what? Anybody? Say it. Nobody knows. Okay. God's not looking for our ability, but he's looking for our availability. All right? So you can, you, can, you can print that onto a shirt. You're welcome. But the point of the matter is, it's not God's, God's not necessarily looking at our, our, our abilities, like what we have, what we don't have, what we're good at, what we're not good at. Though God can use that, but he's really just simply looking at, are we available? Are we available? Do we, do, do we, see, do we see ourselves in a place where our lives are at the pathways, the crossways of, of this world of brokenness? That's where Peter and John were. They were just going to pray. They could have been like, you know, we don't have time. We're going to go pray. We're going to, go, we're going to worship God. We don't have time to help you. But they're like, they, I, I, this, this can be so challenging to me. Because again, part of the thing within our lives is that we are so ridiculously busy. We don't have time to like stop. 
We don't have time to listen to this world's needs because we're like, I'm so busy. My life is so ridiculously important. And the phone call that I'm on and the texting that I'm involved in, I cannot put this thing down because my life is so ridiculously important that we cannot even see the needs of the world around us. But the fact is, this is about being available, seeing the fact that we live in a world where it's steeped in brokenness. This man was a deeply broken man. Peter and John, they just, they're just like, look, all we have is, is hands. There's no money in these hands, but we just have hands. Let me give you a hand. In the name of the risen Savior, Jesus, let me help you out. So we see that miracles not only point to the power of Jesus, they also point to God's power to mobilize through our efforts and through our gifts. And then finally, the miracles point to God's promises uh, that were fulfilled. And so to understand this, um, if you want to turn back there to the book of Isaiah, um, but I want to start actually in the book of Genesis because this concept actually taps into, now what Luke says, he tells us something within the text. He gives us this little clue, this hint. Um, and he uses a hint that's with, actually within the Greek language. And there's a word that he uses, it's the word leaping. It's a word that actually doesn't get used very often. It's a very, very um, um, uh, you know, unfamiliar word within the rest of the New Testament. But it's a word that would have been totally familiar if you were Jewish in the first century and you were hoping for God, Yahweh, to show up and move and do stuff. That This would have, word, would have been a word that would have been very familiar to you. So um, in the book of Genesis, what we're told is that God created all things good. But human beings, rather than trusting and loving God as like a father, we distrusted God. Our, our, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, rather than trusting God as a father, they turned away from God. They believed the lie. And rather than believing the fact that God's intentions for our lives are good, even our suffering is somehow for good, we oftentimes believe this lie, this, this, this alter narrative, if you would, that says no, God's not good. And what he's allowing you to go through right now, the reason he's allowing you to go through is because at the end of the day, this is evidence that proves to you that he is beyond question or fact, he's not good. Because if he is good, why would he allow you to be sick? If he is good, why would he allow you to be crippled? If he is good, why would he allow you to go through divorce? If he is good, why would he allow you to lose all this money? And then Adam and Eve bought the lie, and it led to a world of brokenness. It led to a world of discovery, self-discovery, of sin, of evil, of wickedness. And it was a world that brought about destruction, not only upon them, but to the entire world. In other words, God's good creation became co-mingled with brokenness. That's one of the reasons why, by the way, we can look at this world around us, and on the one hand, we can see things that are absolutely breathtakingly beautiful, like a sunset, right, or being uh, like Tahoe, or see some of these amazing sights or images or pictures, or one of my greatest desires on my bucket list to see the aurora, uh, Borealis, one of my greatest desires, but the fact of the matter is we can, we can see this world, and it's filled with beauty, and at the same time, filled with great brokenness and pain and suffering. And what we see here in really this story is God makes this promise at the beginning of Genesis. He says, I'm going to bring healing to that which has gone broken. I'm going to bring forgiveness to that which has gone astray. I'm going to bring order to where there is nothing but chaos. And so through the remainder of the story, you see this unfolding drama continue to un- 
pack itself, and God calls to himself a nation. He calls this nation Israel, and Israel is supposed to be this nation that rightly covenants with God, and, you know, by a contract or covenant, as we would call it, and they vow, we will live for you, Yahweh, we'll follow you, we'll be a people that shine like a bright light upon the planet, and we will be those that will be conveyors and portrayers of blessing and goodness, and yet, Shockingly, Israel, rather than being the solution or part of the solution or the one that points to the solution, they become infected with the same disease. They need healing. And what we see is these images or these pictures all throughout what's called the prophets. And the prophets would rise up and they would proclaim and they would imagine. They would imagine a future. What would the future look like when Yahweh becomes king? Kings over all things. What would it look like when Yahweh comes back and reorders this broken world, this broken nation, our broken lives, what would it look like? And Isaiah, in the context of all this, makes this promise, and it's shockingly beautiful. Listen to it. I'm going to read a couple passages back. I'm going to end on verse 6, because in verse 6, pay attention real carefully, because there is a phrase in there that links us back to the story of Acts chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 35 says this, Strengthen the weak hands. Now, mind you, real quick, uh, this was written in a time of great brokenness and great pain and great national shame. Uh, Israel was a nation that was literally on stage five terror alert, all right? Stage five terror alert. People were wondering what's going to happen. What about the invading nations? Will they come? Will they rape our wives? Will they take our kids and sell them off into slavery? Will they lop off the heads of our men? What will happen to Israel as a nation? So you can see how there's direct parallel to the world in which we live in today. There's lots of anxiety that we live under in our own country. This is where Israel was at, and Israel received, via the prophet, a word from God. And here's what it says. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not be afraid. Do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to rescue or save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And what we have is sort of this depiction that Yahweh's solution would actually come in the form of a very unexpected means, Jesus. He comes as a king, not conquering, not crushing, not shedding the blood of his enemies, but shockingly taking upon himself the consequences which his enemies deserve. The suffering, the shame, the betrayal, the pain, the sin, the death. He absorbs it upon himself and he bears, he carries all of that to the point of death. Philippians tells us even death on the cross, which is another way of simply saying the most shameful way of dying. That's what Yahweh took in and through the person of Jesus for you. But in this story, we see that one of the byproducts of this king coming, lame men will be healed. They will leap with joy. That's the same word that in the ancient Hebrew Bible was actually translated into the Greek. It was called the Septuagint. And so most Jews in the first century, when they read their Bibles, right, they had this Old Testament, they would have read it in the Greek, many of them. It was the common language of the day. And they would have read this Isaiah passage, verse 6, the lame man leaped like a deer. And Luke actually uses the same word. And it's a hyperlink. 
It's Luke's way of saying, look, you get the connection? This is God breaking into the world's suffering and brokenness in the most profound way, bringing healing in the most unexpected ways. This man encountered not a dead Savior, but a risen Savior who still brings healing. But this is the God that's entering into this broken man's life right now to the point where he is leaping, just like the Isaiah passage tells us. So we see, first of all, or thirdly, I should say, this is God's promises fulfilled. And finally, we see that miracles also point to really this need beneath the need. Another way of putting it, ultimate uh, restoration and recovery. So again, here's a man, uh, lame, is unable to move his body. We don't know the extent of the paralysis, the brokenness in which his body is suffering. But the fact of the matter is, is he's totally dependent upon other people. He shows up this day as he has done always for the past maybe several decades. And his big expectations again for the day are maybe a loaf of bread, maybe a Subway sandwich, maybe a burrito, and maybe some coins. Um, And yet God comes upon him and through this miracle actually reveals that there is actually a need that lay deep beneath his real need. So this is what Christianity addresses. Christianity does not just simply address a nice moral way of somehow changing the world's behavior so that we become a better place. No, actually Christianity goes deep into the heart and says, no, the real issue, the reason why we are the way that we are is not just simply because people out there are killing each other, but because this heart is filled with hatred towards people that I don't like. Jesus goes way deeper and uncomfortably so. See, we oftentimes are like, Lord, Rid this world from the rapists and perverts of this world that make this world a horrible place. But Jesus says, no, the real issue is we need to get rid of the lust that's resident in each one of you. Because it's that lust that's the seed to this massive grove of brokenness and destruction in this world. And until that seed is addressed, in other words, until salvation comes to your heart, this world will never, ever be different. So Jesus addresses the need beneath the need. Many of us, we come here, we we just think the greatest needs of our lives are, you know, again, being made physically well, or being given a job, or being given a spouse, or being given a promotion, or maybe just somehow ridding your life from that annoying person. And in reality, Jesus says, no, the real need is that you, you need to be forgiven before me. You need to see my beauty. You need to let that compel you. There's a quote. It's a pastor. I don't always agree with everything he says, but he had this really great quote. A guy by the name of Brian Zahn. He says this. Our task as Christians is not to protest the world into moral conformity, but to attract the world to the saving beauty of Christ. Our world is not to necessarily protest the world into moral conformity. And a lot of times we do that. A lot of times Christians are trying to somehow put this like exterior mold over the world saying, no, you must celebrate Christmas just like we do. And if you don't, we're going to boycott you. All right. Somebody's like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, but the point of the matter is, is we want to fight and protest something. And the issue of Christianity, I mean, there's some things, let me just say this, that we as Christians should protest because they're just straight up wicked. All right? Childhood prostitution, straight up wicked. Where's the voice of protest going to come against that? It should come from people that love God and love people. But the point of the matter is, is that the aim is not to just simply somehow 
force the world, conform the world in somehow to some moral conformity, but to compel them by the beauty of Christ. And I would suggest to you that this story is so compelling for us because what Peter and John are pointing to is the compelling beauty of Jesus that made this man whole. And that's what opens the eyes of the blind. That's what saves people. It's the compelling beauty of Jesus. So, in closing, what I want to do is I want to pray because the book of Acts, I've been saying this all along, actually concludes in a really unique um, ending, unique way. In fact, in some ways, some would even argue that it doesn't really even end. It doesn't really stop. It just, it just kind of drops off like a cliffhanger. Like you're left reading the book, and you're like, well, is, this, is this all there is? Like, where's, where's the part two? Where's the rest of the story? And the rest of the story, most would, I think, rightly say, the rest of the story is right here. It's right here. You're like, where? They're like, you guys. Like, in other words, the past 2,000 years of Christian history is the rest of the story. In other words, to put it this way, Jesus didn't stop doing his work 2,000 years ago, and we're, here we are, just a bunch of spectators looking back at a historical event with some form of nostalgia, like, whoa, isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? God's awesome. Let's root for Jesus this week. But the reality is, is that this God has continued to work and move and continues to want to work and move in our lives. The question is, is will we allow him? Do we want him? Do we expect him to? So I want to believe that God wants to set people free and heal people. That just like this beggar at the gate beautiful, he's broken and at the same time he's at this place of beauty. He's, he's at this level of brokenness and yet beauty. And, so, and yet it's in that situation that God reaches out to him to rescue him. So I want to pray for those of us that probably would fall into one of three camps. I'll just kind of think about it one of three different ways. There might be a lot more, but I'm just going to kind of use big categories. And what I want to do is just to let you know, I'm going to have some of you that if this is you, you'll stand up and we're going to pray for you. We're just going to gather around you and pray for you. We're going to believe and trust that God wants to meet you in your life, in circumstances, and bring some form of healing or transformation or wholeness or restoration or recovery. And Again, the point is, is that God does not necessarily always answer the prayers that we pray. I mentioned this to you guys a couple weeks ago. There's a gal, I actually just did a funeral for her a couple days ago, and the fact of the matter is, back in March, I prayed for her along with several other people. We prayed, and we thought that for several months she was actually healed from cancer. And I got a phone call last week that, from her husband, basically telling me that she, she passed. And honestly, I'll be really frank with you, I, I'm still wrestling with that one. I'm still wrestling with God. You know, there's times we pray and sometimes you don't, you don't, you don't answer in the ways that we expect. But the f- shocking reality about that whole family, that whole scenario that I, I walked into was even though she suffered and she died from something that we thought that Jesus healed her from, they'd suffered well. And that's compelling. That's beautiful. Rather than becoming angry or distorted by bitterness and frustration and angst and cynicism, there was a beauty about that family that just was, that drew you in. You're like, I want to be near these people because there's something about their life that's absolutely compellingly beautiful. She suffered well. They suffered well. So I don't want to lead anybody into some sort of expectation that God always does everything we say, but there is... So sometimes we don't pray. We're like, well, I don't think God's going to answer the prayer. But what if, what if he does answer your prayer? What if you've come in here and you've had this baggage, this stuff that you've carried? We all carry it. We all have our own little baggage. So don't be ashamed of carrying your baggage. 
just know that there's a place to take that baggage and do something with it. And this is where we see Jesus coming to the rescue. But what if God wants to heal you today? What if God wants to move in a way or at least begin the process of healing over your life today? So that's what we want to enter into and just trust and believe. So three things that we'll pray for. One, we'll pray for those that to some degree you need healing, a breakthrough, a restoration mentally or physically. So physical malady. So first of all, let's start with that physical and then we'll look at finances and we'll look at relationships. First of all, so we'll do a little bit of uh, calisthenics. So we'll have you stand up and then as soon as you're going to stand up, we'll have people around you stand up with you, lay hands on you and they're going to pray over you and I'm going to just pray a general prayer we won't take very long for this, but the idea is we just want to respond in the same way that Peter and John, they say, stretch out your hand. They stretch out his hand. They stood up, and that was sort of the catalyst. That was the point where God healed him and met him. And maybe that may be the point and the place where God meets you and heals you. Who knows? Who knows? So first of all, physical, mental. This would be people that to some degree your life has been uh, compelled or mastered or controlled by unexplained pain, maybe cancer diagnosis, maybe an infection, maybe multiple sclerosis, back pain, tension in your back to the point where it's, just, it's crushing you, you are stressed, you're under this angst and anxiety, and maybe that has bled over into emotional and maybe even mental types of breakdown where you can't think straight, you stay awake late at night because you are just constantly in this whirlwind of anxiety and stress and worry, and you can't think, you can't move, you can't function properly. Jesus may want to heal you this morning. And if that's you, if there's any types of situations like that that might describe you, would you please just stand right where you are? We just want to pray for you. Anybody? Physical, mental, emotional. We want to pray for you. Physical, emotional, mental. Okay? Just go ahead and stand. It's okay. We, we love you. Just want to pray for you. Anybody? Anybody else? Physical, emotional, mental. All right, so if you see these people standing, the rest of you sitting down, you got two hands, use those hands to lay on someone. And right now, begin to pray over them. Um, just pray over them out loud so they can hear you. Um, and if God gives you a scripture or a word or an image or a picture, don't be afraid to maybe share that with them. And I'm just going to pray. So as you guys pray out loud so they can hear you right now, I'm going to just pray a general prayer over, and then uh, we'll move on to the next one. So God, right now we want to believe that you are a healing God. We believe that the story of the book of Acts did not end at that, at that book, at the end. God, that you are still doing good things. You're still healing people. You are still uh, causing people to be raised up from paralysis and brokenness and sickness and disease. And God, we just confess we don't always understand why you do the things that you do, but we want to believe and trust that you can, you may, you may want to right now, today, set people free. Bring healing into their life. So we want to believe you and trust you, God, that you will do that. So we entrust these people here this morning that are suffering under the weight of the stress of the anxiety of any type of physical abnormalities or uh, frustrations or scenarios that are just inexplicable. And we just pray, God, that you would bring healing and restoration in those areas. And we believe in the mighty name of Jesus to do good things for the grace that you're going to help sustain them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All right, you can be seated. And uh, secondly, if you have any type of financial situations, maybe you are extremely in debt and you wake up in the middle of the night just under this oppression, this weight, maybe even with the Christmas season coming in, you're stressing out, freaking out about how are you going to do what really, you know, maybe by gifts or whatever. Uh, maybe it's even beyond that or worse beyond that. Maybe you've been a part of a bad deal and you've lost 
thousands of dollars. Uh, maybe you were married to someone and they were supposed to be paying child support and they haven't, so you have lost out and it's caused you to lose a sense of peace and stability and your mind is overtaken by a sense of grief and loss. Uh, we believe that. There are times that even Scripture, Jesus says, you know, t- speaking about the, the, the lady that lost something, she works diligently to find it. There, we believe we have a God that loves to bring about restoration. We've seen the book of Job. That this was Job. I mean, Job lost everything, and yet God brought restoration. Now, the fact is, there may be occasions where God looks at us and our lives and realizes the best thing for us is not necessarily give us things, but sometimes even take away things. Therefore, we need grace. But the point is, is that we want to pray for those that find themselves in financial situations or straits or anxieties or loss. Uh, some of it may be your doing. Maybe it's because you have this propensity to spend. You don't have control over it. And as a result of that, you have found yourself in the midst of debt. And you feel this overwhelming sense of shame. Jesus wants to bear and carry that shame and heal your heart that feels the need to covet after stuff and reorient your heart to love him. He wants to heal you. So if that's you, any type of financial situation, would you stand right where we're at? I want to pray for you. Anybody? Cool. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Anybody? If you stood the first time, it's okay. You can stand twice. It's all right. So if you're standing up or sitting next to someone that's standing, once you uh, go find someone, um, I'm, 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 I'm certain there's more than just a couple of you guys, but that's, that's fine. Anybody else? I'll just give you one final shot. Okay. A few more. Um, anybody else? Financial stuff that just keeps you up at night? You feeling stressed, nervous, whatever? Okay. All right. Um, why don't you go grab someone and put your hands on them and go over, pray over, over them right now. Again, if God gives you scripture or word or picture or an image or something to share with them, ask God if that's for them. And then if it feels like sense in your heart that maybe it is, share it with them. Go ahead, pray out loud for them. I'm going to pray general prayer over them and over all. So God, right now, again, we believe that you are the God that recovers and restores and brings healing. And there are occasions in our lives, God, that you just simply give us good things that we were not expecting. Sometimes it comes in the form of money. Sometimes it comes in the form of a new house or things that we just were not expecting. And yet you give it to us, not so that we can just simply be blessed as an end of itself, but that God, through us being blessed, we can then be a blessing. So God, I pray for healing, restoration over these people's lives. I pray, God, as well as they may find themselves in the midst of stress as and anxiety as to what they don't have or maybe a sense of shame over how they've gotten in this position, we pray, Jesus, that you would show them that you carry their shame. And as a son or a daughter, there's no need to be ashamed before a father because, God, you bring healing, and I pray that you would bring healing to their hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last one. We're done. Relationships, relationships, brokenness in relationships. We see brokenness in physical, mental, emotional. We see brokenness in our finances. But one of the big ones is brokenness in relationships. And this could be a child that's turned, not walking with Jesus. If you're a parent, older children. If you're someone that has a parent that's turned from you, you feel abandoned. Maybe your parents divorced and you've always kept and born in your heart the sense of grief and anger, and frustration, sense of distance. There's been no reconciliation. Maybe someone has uh, hurt you or abandoned you in the form of a relationship, maybe like boyfriend or girlfriend, or marriage, divorce, betrayal. Maybe someone has offended you. Maybe you have been the offensive person. You have that type of abrasive 
personality that is just straight up offensive. You know who you are. Um, that's me sometimes. Um, if you know me, sometimes it's going to be that way. Um, but I'm surrounded by people that love me and show grace. And so I have this opportunity to say I'm sorry. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is an opportunity to receive from God healing in those broken areas of relationships. So if that's you, why don't you go ahead and stand where you're at. Um, and finally, um, part of that whole thing, before you stand, let me just say this one last thing. Um, if the, the greatest relationship of all, in other words, a relationship above and beyond, I should say, or underneath all of the relationships, is a relationship with God. And maybe there's brokenness between you and God, and your life has been defined by brokenness or distance between you and God. You feel far. You feel far because your sins have separated you from God. And you here this morning want to recognize the fact that you don't want to go on any further like that. You want God to heal that broken relationship, to understand, to receive from God the gift that he has brought restoration and healing. Um, So in any type of relational situations that there's this broken, that's defined by brokenness, you would look at relationships right now and just say that it's, it's broken and I want healing, I want Jesus to heal. What I would say to you, look at me, right, like Peter and John, look at me, Let's stand. If that's you, go ahead, stand. I'm going to have the worship team come on up while you guys are standing. Um, as you're standing, if you're seeing someone stand, why don't you, uh, if you're sitting by them, stand up with them, put your hands on them. Anybody else? You just feel like your life has broken relationships. Maybe it's a broken relationship with you and God, and you want to trust that God will restore you, forgive you, wash you, cleanse you, receive you again. Just go ahead, stand. And uh, in fact, um, let me pray. I want you to go ahead and pray over them right now. And then I'll pray, general prayer, and then we'll just respond. Um, so God, right now I just pray for those that have relationships in their life that have caused deep angst and pain and hurt, frustration and betrayal, vulnerability. And God, as a result of that, it's, 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 it's maybe rather than suffering well, it's, it's, it's caused them to suffer poorly. And as a result of that, they become calloused and cynical and distrusting, and jaded, and distant. In other words, everything that is the very opposite of what it means to be like a child. So Jesus, bring healing. Bring about a childlike restoration of of trust, of confidence, back in their hearts again. Jesus, you're a good God that brings healing. And the reason why Jesus, we trust in you as our healer. It's because you bore our sin, our shame, our guilt, our offenses, and you were crushed. And in our place, God, you've provided a way whereby we who are crushed, we who feel the consequences of betrayal, we who feel the consequences of defilement, we can be free. We can be made whole. Our brokenness could be healed. So we trust you, Jesus. We look to you and we want to respond. Amen. So why don't we all stand and we're going to respond by singing. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. We eat the bread and drink the cup as a reminder of the fact that this bread, broken bread and poured out cup is a symbol. It speaks of Jesus' blood which was spilled, poured blood for us, his body that was broken for us so that he was made broken so that we who are broken can be made whole. That's, that's the whole story of the Lord's Supper. And let's sing, let's respond. Uh, we have some rugs in the front. If you just want to get on your knees and hands before God and just worship Him, the posture of your heart be one of, one of 
on your hands and knees and your face. It's fine. Uh, if you're still here and you need some prayer, we have some people over off by the cross that would love to pray for you. So let's sing. Let's respond. Let's worship God.